welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So we got six books plus some psalms to cover here. Uh, Nehemiah is where we'll start the very last chapter you guys read at the beginning of the week. Um, and this is where um, I sort of see the beauty of sort of the literary structure of this book that we watch as Arubabel help rebuild the temple and the sacrificial system. But by this chapter, we see the priest or um, using the courtyard for some shady storage and the rest of the priests are neglecting their work. And then we see Ezra call people back to the Torah and obedience to that. But then we see people breaking the Sabbath and then Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. And then we see the merchants at the walls selling on the Sabbath. And so um, the three major movements of reform to establish um, obedience here has just um, been undone in some ways by the finale of this book, leaving the reader sort of longing for something more as if, um, we came back with passion to, to reestablish things, but it still hasn't quite worked out as if we need likely what would be a, a true heart change, not just time in exile uh, to correct what's wrong. It kind of reminds me of Moses going to Mount Sinai and Aaron taking over and making the golden calf. You know, they lose their primary leader at this time and they all kind of fall back into previous patterns or uh, lack of faithfulness. Yep. Final thoughts? So I do think there's a lot of hope in this book of Nehemiah. There's beautiful and humble prayers, and there's a promise of a restored Jerusalem. Uh, but it ends with everyone breaking the law again. And I think it's such a strong reminder that we need a better plan. We need a better Nehemiah to save Israel. Um, and the grief kind of at which this book ends should cause us to look toward Jesus, who will make it all right, not just for a time, but forever. Yeah. And, and the stories of, of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel offer this, I mean, they're, they're zealous, they're, they're full of passion and love for God. They, they want to reestablish things. They want a new era for God's people. But at the end, it, it doesn't quite work. And um, these books aren't offering, I would argue, some of the, the list of successful leaderships. These those leaders have their own problems as well. But in reality, it's sort of this sobering story of leaders who cannot bring about this full realization of the hopes and dreams of what Israel can be. Um, even when they've tried, they've prayed their hardest, and we need not only a better Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, but like we need Jesus to establish new hearts in us. Uh, so Haggai, <clears throat> um, we have heard about Haggai already as we read through the book of Ezra. He's contemporary of that time, particularly uh, during Zerubbabel. Um, he's going to talk about things like obedience. He's going to talk about the future, uh, amongst other things that he will tackle yeah, so this is happening about 70 years after the exile. Babylon has collapsed and the Persians are, have ruled or are ruling, which is allowing the Israelites to return to Israel. Uh, we'll see a real emphasis on temple restoration here and part of God's desire to renew a covenant relationship with his people. Yeah. And, and we're introduced, I would argue, to some tension here. As when David and Solomon went out to build the temple, God essentially told them, look, I don't need you to build me a house. But now all of a sudden, he seems actually more interested in building the temple. But let's also note the differences. David um, set out to build the, 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 um, the temple after he built himself this beautiful house and has some sense of guilt uh, about it and, and decides God needs a nice house too. But here, the people are rebuilding and they're building for themselves. They're building their new houses. The new houses are actually pretty nice, but they haven't given any thought at all to God's house. And Haggai is here kind of confronting that, saying like, all right, there's something wrong with your hearts here that you're very interested in the things that are about you, but you're not actually interested in the things that are Yahweh's. Consider consider your ways as he instructs. Like, how is that working out for you? Like, you've rebuilt this comfortable life, but is that working for you? Is it bringing fulfillment? And God ultimately closes up the skies like Deuteronomy speaks about in the midst of their disobedience. Hey, yeah, here gives a, is a strong instruction that Israel is to consider their ways, like it says in verse 7. Because right now what the people are doing is they're focusing on themselves and their own needs, and their needs are still unmet. They are not satisfied. And God is 
working to help them see that they need to realign their priorities and trust God to provide fully for them as they serve and love God first. And I just think this passage is so relevant for us. We live in a place and a posture of also having not quite enough. We want more stuff or more security or more uh, notoriety. And God's challenge to Israel is to consider their ways, uh, to understand their self-sufficiency isn't working because God is the one who provides. And we are to do the same. Uh, and the people obey the Lord. About a month later, we find out that they start moving on the temple building project. So there's a team of leaders who kind of come around to help rebuild the temple. And Israel, their suffering and their lack did realign their priorities. So we can step back and consider that and even our own lives. Oftentimes when we have a struggle or we have a need, we turn back to God. Um, and so we don't see that the drought is lifted or that they have what they want. It's not prosperity gospel, but we do see them returning to the initial instruction that God gave them to rebuild the temple. Uh, but the people react that the, as this temple gets built over a little bit more time, that the building's kind of underwhelming. Uh, Solomon's temple is grandiose, uh, but the second temple, not only here, but over time, gets rebuilt kind of a couple times before Herod uh, puts some money into it. But um, it is a bit sort of underwhelming compared to what uh, Solomon's temple layout was, and certainly underwhelming compared to Ezekiel's vision of a uh, future temple. Um, and so, um, but God comes along and said, look, I'm, I'm going to shake things up. Like there's a movement that's coming, uh, which once again, um, I would argue doesn't really happen till Jesus. We, we never really see some of what Haggai talks about here happen in, in, in sort of the Old Testament um, history. And so um, we see this sort of uh, new shakeup of God um, where the glory of the temple is going to be distinct. And, and it's not going to be about beautiful stones and tremendous size of the structure. It's going to be about something else, which even in the book of Acts, it's not that God dwells in these temples. Like God doesn't dwell in temples made from hand. He has has his own cosmic temple. And so he's, he's speaking here saying, look, I'm going to shake things up and there's going to be this movement. It's not going to be about this building that you guys are building me. Yeah. Let's not take for granted that we in modern day are getting to read this on this side of the cross and this side of Christ. Uh, this prophecy really clearly points to fulfillment in Christ and our future kingdom that's not going to be shaken, which we've already read about in the book of Hebrews. This latter glory is greater than the former, which is really just amazing. And so it's it's a gift that we get to read it, understanding what Haggai is referencing here. Yeah. And so, and then we get a couple months later and it, um, it seemed like the people initially needed sort of a, the fire stoke to get started and maybe they've been moving along, but, but now there's sort of a, another maybe drift that there's obedience issues or something. And it causes Haggai to ask them, look, uh, there's something holy and something else touches it. Does it make that thing holy? It's like, well, no, that's not how it works. But uh, if there's something clean and then it touches something unclean, does that cause it to be unclean? It's like, yes. Well, I mean, that's, that's Levitical law 101. Um, and, and I think Haggai is pointing out in the midst of their drift, their disobedience, it's easier to pass on impurity than purity. And, and I think, once again, he's consider your ways, people. Like, if you walk in a path that's unclean and disobedient, like it starts affecting everything else, and 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 you need to pay, you need to pay more attention to your obedience. You need to be um, that it involves work and it involves intention uh, in the midst of these things. So something clean can really easily become dirty when it comes in contact with dirt, but the reverse is not true. Something dirty doesn't become clean when it touches something clean. And this is to point us to the reminder that our cleansing must come from outside of us. We cannot make ourselves clean. Our blessing and our cleansing comes from and through Christ alone. Um, and God uh, ultimately says, uh, to, to wrap up the book, that he is going to do this thing into the future, that um, he's choosing his leaders like Zerubbabel. He's going somewhere. There's a redemption to come. Uh, it's very future-oriented. 
And if you hop forward to Matthew chapter one, the genealogy of Christ, you'll see Zerubbabel's name in it. Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Jesus, which is yeah. pretty cool. So final thought. So the first thing is I really love the challenge to consider your ways. Uh, it definitely caused me to think through some of my own ways and some areas of my life that I need to realign what faithful living looks like specifically for me around how I use my time and how I spend my money. And I think the second thing is I just love how messianic and future oriented this book is. Uh, Haggai kind of gives us this picture of what's coming and look at how beautiful and how right it is going to be. And now we can look back and forward and say, look how that prophecy was answered through Christ and how beautiful our future kingdom and inheritance is going to be. Yeah. And, and to me, Haggai felt a little bit James-ish as if um, they're coming back with a sense of nationalism. They want to do their own thing. But Haggai downplays that to go, look, let's talk about obedience. Like, Let's talk about rebuilding the temple. Let's talk about um, sin and how it affects other things. That, that the obedience of God's people is tied into God's working in the world, that they have choices and, and those choices matter. And, um, and the good news is that God is working toward his glorious future. So let's join him in that. And then we jump back into Isaiah, and just a rem- reminder, this is a transition almost uh, in, in terms of tone. Uh, the previous section was about suffering and the suffering servant, all that that servant will have to go through. Um, and then we kind of move into this time where now God's saying, look, now come, I'm providing for you. There will be great provision, and um, whatever you need, I am going to, to meet that. Um, and he reminds his people sort of his graciousness. And, and in that, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And usually we take that sometimes to mean like God works in mysterious ways, but in the context text right here, God's pretty clear. Like the ways that God's thoughts are not our thoughts is by his scandalous forgiveness and grace that, that God's not like us in the fact that he is gracious and is willing to forgive sin and welcome us back in. Yeah, we're reminded that God's pardon and compassion is for everyone who will receive it for free. It can't be purchased by money, but only purchased by the blood of Christ. Uh, and then um, we're taught about this sort of beautiful future with foreigners and eunuchs. And in um, that is also teaching about Sabbath which is so central to the Old Testament. I mean, you start with that in Genesis 1. Uh, you end with that if, if you have a Jewish Old Testament with Chronicles and, and sort of this reminder to Sabbath and um, this rest and trust in God. And, and we, we get this beautifully poetic future of, um, as I said, nations and eunuchs and all coming in, and that God's house will be this house of prayer. Um, and, and it's mixed in with some statements. Um, and, and we get to this in both the sections, uh, the, the section, the one right after it, of Israel's leaders sometimes really struggling. And it's such a portrait of Jesus's life who um, is is ushering in this new era of the Gentiles and the blessing of the Gentiles and them being grafted in, but at the same time also speaks plenty about Israel's failed leadership, um, particularly the shepherds of Israel. Yeah, and we see here that God's salvation is not confined to the physical walls of the temple, and we see space being made for foreigners to come into the fold, which of course we understand as Gentiles, um, but God is continuing to point people's eyes beyond just Israel, but all people. But we're continuously reminded of uh, the futility of idolatry. It almost feels full circle from the beginning of the book um, that there's pagan practices, and 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 he's reminding them, you think these things are working for you, but they are destroying you. And those idols are not able to deliver them. But once again, in the midst of idolatry, God reminds them, look, repent, return to me. There's always grace to be had, and God desires this remnant to be not necessarily the, a perfect people, but a repentant people, a humble people who are willing to, to return to him, even in the midst of their stumbling. And our returning to God is not by cleansing or sacrifice, but by confessing our sin. God is near to those who are lowly in spirit. Think about Jesus talking in Matthew 11, and he offers comfort and peace to those who will receive his deliverance and acknowledge their brokenness and need for a savior. 
And so let's jump into First John. We get the last chapter of John, or last very section of the last chapter, uh, which feels like, at times like quick hits, as most of these letters do, that God listens to the prayers of the faithful, uh, that we should pray for our brothers and sisters, particularly in our struggles with sin, um, that uh, we don't pray for that same thing for those that have left the faith altogether. Maybe we pray for their salvation. but um, And there's a further push for, um, for people not to stray from both the faith and the community of faith. Yeah. John closes and reminds us of what we already know. We know that everyone who's been born of God doesn't keep on sinning, but is protected by God and is untouched by the evil one. We know that we are from God, even though the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. And we know him who is true and eternal and have life in him. So final thoughts. I just really love this book. I love how John walks that line of loving God and being born of God and loving others and how the two work together and you can trust and lean on the work of the spirit and the blood of Christ to live out who he has created and designed us to be. Yeah, John uh, feels like throughout the letter intricately weaves truth and love as these themes. And sometimes we create a false dichotomy between um, being a people of love and being a people of truth. But John would challenge that saying, like, look, that's not how it works. Like, if you're orthodoxy, your truth doesn't ultimately end up with a lived out practice of of being a loving person. Then your orthodoxy is off somewhere. Uh, if you're not loving, then, then the truth isn't in you. And so um, making sure that we're people who are upholding truth, but a truth that leads to a transformed life that reflects the love of Jesus and how we live. Mm-hmm. Uh, second John, uh, we start with uh, a letter to the elect lady and her children, which um, yeah, it could be an individual person, but most likely I was referring to the church, which is the bride of Christ, a feminine identity of church is not uh, uncommon. Uh, and then uh, the end of the book even has statements that probably make it hard for it to be an individual. And so John rejoices that he has heard about this church's faith, how they've lived it out. There's a huge emphasis on truth and the truth of God in this short book. And we see even here just in the introduction that the truth of the gospel is the foundation for our life. We love in truth and we abide in truth and we'll abide in truth forever. And we experience a grace, mercy, and peace of Christ through truth in his love. Yeah, yeah. John's still beating that drum of connecting truth and love, that walking in truth is directly connected to loving others. But John also has warnings uh, that there's come, there's these deceivers coming along and they're denying Jesus in the flesh. So likely this is connected to Gnosticism. And, um, but John desires his people to look abide in his word. There's always a connection between love and truth and abiding in teachings and in the word of, of the Lord. And so don't listen to these other teachers. And then John decides to keep his letter short because he doesn't want to use too much paper. Yeah. Yeah. John is very clear that false teachers are those who don't abide in the teachings of Christ and that's clearly displayed through their lack of love or emphasis on truth and he encourages the people not to tolerate it. I kind of wonder how this idea of not giving hospital hospitality to those teachers even fits into our lives. Does it have to do with the books you read or the social media accounts you follow or the websites we follow? I don't know, but it's something worth thinking about and reflecting on in your own life. And then third John kind of picks up in a similar way. Um, he has joy about hearing about uh, others walking in the truth and this mm. is really about gay is love and hospitality. Um, the truth and love, once again, are attached uh, in some ways uh, through this text. Yeah, another big emphasis on truth. And so for us to remember truth, let's go back to First John and remember what truth is. Truth is believing in Christ's death and resurrection. And truth is essential to stand firm against false teaching. And, and this church uh, cares about the, the sake of the name of Jesus, which is a, a very much an Old Testament theme uh, throughout the, the sort of Kadush Hashem to, to make the name holy. Um, and then we're introduced to di- diatrophies, um, who, uh, and gosh, we have people like this in the church to this day. And they're like, um, he doesn't really want John to be heard that much. He's really bad at hospitality. He doesn't really want any outsiders to be welcomed in. Um, and, and, and so he 
he's a member of the community that's just refusing uh, to welcome these outsiders who um, are coming to the faith. And, um, and it's even interesting, the, 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 the Greek names here um, still have some very pagan roots, but um, they, they haven't decided to change their names. I always find that interesting that um, they're okay with that because Jesus can still redeem uh, even their names. Yeah. So Diotrephes here is called out for not acknowledging authority. And again, as we think about different teachers in the world around us, watch out for that in the world of teachers and influencers. Are there people who you are listening to who are not acknowledging or submitting to authority? Yep. Final thoughts on at least the second and third books of John? So we see that John's primary focus is love and and to love and or is truth and to love one another. And that's expressed in his passionate commitment to truth. And I haven't thought much, to be honest, about the intersection of truth and love other than uh, the Ephesians passage that talks about speaking the truth and love. But it's definitely spurred those thoughts on for me. Our love comes from God and we abide in God when we abide in truth. And so love for others will be an overflow from us when we dwell on and consider the truth of Christ's work for us. Yeah. And, and I think John just keeps going with the that's theme of truth and love and how entwined they are. If you don't have truth, you don't have love. If you don't, if you're not loving, then you probably don't actually have truth. And so um, they're very much um, attached and there's no way to have one and not the other. Yeah. And I just want to say that this idea of truth uh, being specifically in Christ is very countercultural to what the world around us believes. Um, and so this, maybe it's a feel good reading, maybe it's not, but when we live it out, it will be offensive to the world around us. Yep. And so uh, Revelation, we're now in the final book of your New Testament reading. We got a few Old Testament books to get through, but a final New Testament book and a fun one that it is. Um, and one of the last books added to New Testament, uh, one that even the Eastern Orthodox don't even have in their Bibles. But uh, one of the main reasons is that uh, this book is amazingly Jewish, um, which um, is it, kind of true. Uh, the early church fathers struggled with it because of how Jewish the book is, because uh, throughout the book, John is constantly dipping back into the Old Testament throughout his letters. Um, almost every line feels like it's an Old Testament reference. Uh, he utilizes a lot of apocalyptic language, apocalyptic um, writing. Uh, in, um, we, we've encountered a little bit of it in Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Uh, we're going to get some more of it when we get to Zechariah. Um, but it uses utilizes symbols and images to convey hope uh, to the people in their present day. And that would be my best definition of apocalyptic. And we've, we've seen, as I said, we've seen some of it before. There's imagery from Genesis and Exodus all over the place as well. Um, and so John utilizes a ton of the Old Testament, but John utilizes a lot of symbolism for the day. There's hallmarks, um, stuff of Oliver from Asia, from the Roman empire, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, the, the title of the book is really the first word, um, as well of the book, the sort of idea of, of unveiling or revealing, um, the book in, in some ways functions as a pulling back a curtain for John's people about what is true, about what is real, what is true about Rome, what is true about Jesus? What, what is this world really all about? Kind of giving them hope in the midst of uh, people who are at this point in time, um, this is some of the worst persecution that, um, the, the church goes through. And so for people that are suffering greatly, um, there's, there's sort of this, this pastoral side to this, to this letter that is hopeful. And it's good for, you know, I mean, well, I guess I should point out that this was written after the temple was destroyed mm-hmm. in 70 AD. And so, uh, you know, we just read about the temple in Haggai. We're, and so a lot of people are left wondering, what is our future if there's no temple here? And so John's giving us a picture into that and reminds us that we look to the things not that are seen, but to the unseen. And we're kind of getting a picture of this unseen world that's going on around us even today. 
Yeah. And so we get this revelation of Jesus or about Jesus, depending on how you want to translate that. But um, the book, at the end of the day, um, some some dismiss this book because they feel like it's not Jesus-centric. But the opening line is that this is Jesus. And and ultimately, a, a very much a picture throughout the whole book that he is the real king. He is the king of kings, not just Caesar, but he is the true uh, ruler sitting on the throne. And so, um, and, and he's speaking of, even even John will say, this is things that are soon to take place. This is uh, So hear it, keep it. The time is near. It's very imminent for John. Uh, I really love it when books of the Bible have purpose statements, and this one is really easy to spot. Uh, Jesus Christ gave John a revelation so that the church would know and would take what would take place and be reminded of the blessing that comes from hearing and keeping the prophecy. Yeah, and so uh, there's a greeting to the seven churches, which uh, very much makes it feel like a letter, which uh, certainly there's there's triggers in this text that this is a letter to be passed around, a pastoral letter in some ways. Um, and, and John, uh, in apocalyptic literature, you, you immediately often move towards the future, but John right here moves actually to the past um, and, and moves to focus, to, to kind of root us in the beginning on Jesus's death for sin, his 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 conquering then. That's sort of the, the coronation of Jesus really happened then. Now we're going to peel back the curtain to see where Jesus really is sitting on the throne. And he uses Daniel, he uses Zechariah to describe Jesus here. Um, and so he's already giving triggers that um, this book, in terms of literature, should be read in similar veins as those kind of books. Um, and Jesus even uh, has has um, a saying that Yahweh has, that I am the first and the last. And now Jesus is the one proclaiming, uh, I am the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. And so um, Jesus very much is equated with Yahweh in John's mind here. Yeah, right at the get-go, we are reminded that God is coming and will make things right. He began it through Christ, and when Christ returns, it will be completed. And I just love the words, the testimony about Christ and everything we read in verses 5 to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a really good verse to memorize because it sums so much of what we believe up. Yeah, it's a little sad that we haven't read Zechariah yet because uh, some of these visions like that book is filled with horns and scrolls and four horses and all these kind of things and um, one of the things it starts with is a uh, is somebody walking amongst uh, these trees and uh, very much um, reflective of this this person who starts this book who's walking amongst these these lampstands which if you're an Israelite and you understand the lampstands that are in the temple they are carved to literally look like trees and so um, and light being God's presence all this kind of stuff John's hearkening back for all this in this book to, to Zechariah talking about uh, to a people and that's I think the important part almost all the things that John uses in, from the Old Testament, um, whether it's some of the Psalms he quotes, some of the passages out of Zechariah or Isaiah and all that, are about people suffering and called to endure in the midst of um, rulers and emperors that um, are are not their own, uh, sort of foreign rule and foreign um, um, suffering. And what does it look like to have hope in the midst of that? And reminding his people, look, we've been here before. We've we've seen this happen before. And yet God has been faithful. And once again, to, to the people that John's writing to, saying God will be faithful again, because we know how the story will end in the, in the long run. So it is not... Domitian is really in charge. It's it's Jesus who's really in charge, and, and we even see that with the seven stars and things like that. Like that that would have been a reference to, to, to Rome. The stuff Domitian coined even uh, coins with seven stars on them that, about his control of the universe. And he's like, no, no, no. It is really Jesus who is the one uh, who is the Messiah who is reigning. Yeah, John starts by reminding the people that death has been undone and Christ holds the keys to death and Hades. And this is so important for a suffering church. They are reminded that they have, they're fighting from a place of victory in Christ. And it's good for us to remember as well, we're not suffering the same way these churches were back then, but 
we can remember that the one who has undone death for all time is our advocate and our companion as we struggle through and navigate the spiritual battle raging in the world around us as well. Yep. Psalm 122. It seems like a love song to Jerusalem, and I think it reiterates the love God has for the city that we read of in Haggai and we'll read a lot of in Revelation as well. Yeah, it is um, very much uh, a praise of Jerusalem. If if God's behind the city is worthy of honor and noting and beauty and prayer. Uh, Psalm 15. It talks about how faithful living and obedience is more than just going to the temple or offering sacrifices, but living it out and how we posture our hearts and treat others, including the vulnerable and the marginalized. Yeah. Marginalized, so we see a lot of that in the Johns as well. Yeah, God's people are those that love their neighbor, care about justice, care about his word. Psalm 32. Blessed are the forgiven. When David kept silent, he wasted away, but he was freed when he confessed his sins. When we refuse repentance or keep our sins hidden, we are in bondage, and God is waiting and ready to forgive us when we repent. Yeah, it's a beautiful psalm of confession and repentance, finding shelter in God uh, through that process, too. Uh, Next Mm -hmm. week. So as we wrap up Isaiah, look at some of the cross-references. What parts of the Bible quote these sections of Isaiah, or what portions of Scripture do they remind you of? And in the New Testament, what are some commonalities you can see in what the churches are being praised for? What are what are they being criticized for? And how are those relevant to our current state or different from where we currently are as a church? Yeah, uh, and, and so as we kind of finish up Isaiah, there'll be more references to the Sabbath. And uh, how is teaching on the Sabbath a correction for their idolatry that caused the captivity to begin with? Think through that as you're sort of reading, like, how, what does the Sabbath really have to do with this? Uh, and then next week, we get the seven churches. Uh, as I stated, sort of the intro, every sentence is steeped with something both from their time and from the Old Testament as well. Um, if you want to really do your homework, see what you could find, see what you can dig up of what uh, John may be uh, critiquing for them, maybe calling them back to in the Old Testament, all those sort of things. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.